All right, good evening, everyone. Uh, we're gonna go ahead and get started. I wanna thank you for your patience. Um, it's a little bit of traffic here tonight, getting out here tonight. Um, but we are finally here, gathered um, at the Citizen Oversight <coughs> Board uh, Public Forum here in District 5 of Police District 5 for Denver. Um, I am Katina Banks, I'm chair of the board. Um, and uh, with me are fellow board members. And I'm gonna start, um, actually, I'm gonna start with our guests. Um, first, first we have Dr. Uh, Deidre McGee. Um, she's here from New Orleans Police Department. She's going to be talking with us a little bit later about uh, a very interesting program at the New Orleans Police Department. And then at the other end of, of the table, we have our guest, Judge uh, Teresa Spahn. She's actually the presiding judge for Denver, De Denver County Court, as well as Denise Mays, who is policy director at uh, the ACLU. Um, as far as board members are concerned, uh, I'll start to my left, your right. We have uh, Cisco Gallarda, um, and then our newest board member, um, but certainly uh, very, very um, instrumental and, and involved already, and that's um, Al Gardner. Um, to my right is uh, Nikki Brazil, uh, and then Mark Brown, and then uh, Dr. Mary Davis. So um, before we get into our program, I, I certainly want to give you just a sense of what the Citizen Oversight Board does, who we are. Um, we are, were established by ordinance, but now as of uh, 2016, we were, we're part of the charter, the Denver City Charter. And we, we essentially have three um, responsibilities under the city ordinance. Um, first, we're to assess the effectiveness of the Office of the Independent Monitor. The Independent Monitor, of course, monitors investigations for the police department and the sheriff's department. Um, we also um, are tasked with making policy recommendations and those can relate to anything from hiring and training to um, the use of force policies uh, and the like. And then finally, um, we are tasked with addressing issues of concern in the community. And, that, and frankly, that's one of the reasons why it's so important for you to be here or for you to be watching, um, because it's important for us to hear from the community about um, issues of concern that you might have with regard to public safety here in Denver. Um, our policy recommendations are not binding. Um, but um, they are important for us to be to be making and to be to letting people know and be aware of issues we might identify um, in our capacity. Um, currently, the board is comprised of seven members. Although recently, uh, the ordinance was changed, and as soon as possible, as soon as the right committees are established, there will be nine board members um, on the Citizen Oversight Board who will be doing the work that these folks here that you see have been doing. Um, I want to tell you just very quickly, we meet um, twice a month. We meet on the first and third Fridays, and those meetings are open to the public. And so I would invite you to come um, there from 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. in the Denver Post Building, and you can find more information about that on our website. Um, <clears throat> we meet also with the police chief, the uh, sheriff, as well as the executive director of public safety on a quarterly basis, and those meetings are also open to the public, and so I encourage you um, to come and uh, attend a meeting. If you have questions or concerns, you can raise them at that time uh, as well. 
And finally, uh, we are tasked on the ordinance with having public meetings, meetings in the public to hear from you, uh, the community, about issues of concern. And, and frankly, this is, that's what, what this is, that's where you are, and so we are really, really happy and grateful that you're here. Um, again, the program tonight is with regard to criminal justice reform. We're going to be talking about um, some pieces of legislation that were passed in the last General Assembly um, this, um, this past uh, winter, um, from between January and May, um, that are, are pretty critical. And, uh, and then we're going to hear again from Do Dr. McGee about a criminal justice program that's been implemented uh, down in New Orleans. Um, before we jump in the program, though, I would like to introduce a couple special guests. Um, first, I'd like to, to, to introduce uh, independent monitor Nick, Mon Nick Mitchell. Um, he's, he's here with us, I, really just to support, I think, today. Sometimes he presents for us, but, but not today. Also, um, <laughs> also um, Lieutenant Penn, who's representing uh, the Denver Police District 5. Thank you very much for being here, Lieutenant. We appreciate you. Um, and with, with that, I think we'll go ahead and get started with the program. So <clears throat> in the last legislative session, uh, the General Assembly um, passed a series of criminal justice reform measures, um, some more um, simple or straightforward than others, but two in particular um, we, we thought were worth having a discussion in the community to let folks know about them and, and help folks understand them a little bit better. Um, the first one that we want to talk about is um, Senate Bill 19-191, which is um, titled Prompt Pretrial Liberty and Fairness, uh, which, are, which are really important words, powerful words. What does that actually all mean? Um, uh, we are grateful to have with us uh, Denise Mays from uh, the ACLU who, who helped, helped with these measures um, to help explain them. So um, would you mind if I just punt to you, Denise, and you can maybe tell us a little bit more about I mean, I about. mind a little, but no, no, it's all good. It's all Thank good. you. So um, Senate Bill 191 um, is, is kind of a, let me just give like one step back and give some background. There's a lot of really weird things happening throughout the state of Colorado and in municipal courts and in state and county courts that have to do with the notion of money bail. What that means is that um, if you can't afford the toll to get out of jail, then you're stuck in jail. And so we had a series of different legislative attempts to sort of chip away at that notion that poverty is not a crime meaning you shouldn't be in jail simply because you can't afford the toll to get out. And House Bill 1225 and Senate Bill 191 are two pretty big significant pieces of legislation that our legislature uh, passed and the governor signed into law. Uh, what we found across the state, for example, is that in certain counties, you were only allowed to post bail at certain times of the week on certain days. So for example, in Arapahoe County, you could only post it on Wednesdays between four and six and Thursdays between 10 and 12. And that was the case all over the state in various counties and in various municipalities. So what House Bill 191 says is that no matter where you are incarcerated, where you are arrested, that you have to be able to post your bond within two hours of arrest. So that's now uniform across the state of Colorado. Um, the other piece of this legislation, which I uh, acknowledge and will tell you was all about Denver, 
is that you have to be released within four hours of posting your bond. What was happening in Denver was that you could be in jail after posting your bond for up to 24 hours, we had found, in some instances even longer, for no reason at all. We had Sheriff Elder, who is the uh, sheriff of the largest jail in the state of Colorado, El Paso County, who can get his people out in less than four hours. For some reason, Denver couldn't do it on their own, so they needed a little bit of legislative help to get them there. So that's another piece of Senate Bill 191 that's really important for Denver residents. The other piece of it, which is also important, which was not only, uh, Denver didn't only serve the genesis of this, there were other um, municipalities and county courts that were doing this, but it is called, what we refer to as let the bond be the bond. Some of you may have heard of an individual named Mickey Howard. He came into the Denver jail with $35. The court set his bond at $10, which means the judge really wanted him out, but the judge also wanted a $10 bond. Well, Mickey Howard came into the jail with $35. He could have afforded his $10 bond, but what he didn't realize is Denver put on top of that and took first his fines and fees, his bond fee, his jail fee, so now he was $65 underwater. So he could no longer post his $10 bond, even though he came into the jail with $35. So what this portion of Senate Bill 191 says is let the bond be the bond and that money goes out first. We sued Denver on the Mickey Howard case and immediately Denver said, you're right, it's kind of dumb that we're doing that. And so Denver backed off, no longer does these fines and fees. They did it even before Senate Bill 191 was passed. But those are the, I think, the three biggest components of Senate Bill 191 that should hopefully mean a big difference in people's lives when they come in contact with the Denver jail. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Denise. Um, so the, the other one, you actually already mentioned this, uh, Denise, is House Bill 1225, which is basically titled No Monetary Bail for Certain Low-Level Offenses. Um, do you mind explaining to, to us a little bit about, do you mind? Would you please uh, explain to us a little bit? All, actually, I, I know, um, so that we can uh, yeah get a full full picture of that one as well. Right. So House Bill 1225 basically says, for the pettiest of offenses, for the lowest of crimes, you shouldn't be held on money bond whatsoever. So you pee in the park, you should be held on money bail. Um, urban camping ban, you shouldn't be held on money bail. Now, what are the purposes of money bail? We can dispute back and forth whether the stated purposes of money bail is really um, holding up to its intent in any way, shape, or form. But if one of the things that you ever wanted to do with money bail is keep people from reoffending, the kinds of crimes we're talking about are sort of ridiculous to hold people in on, on cash or money. You're homeless, and so, oh, we don't want you to trespass. What are the chances that once you're released, you're gonna do that? but not a safety to the community. Um, driving too slowly, dog off leash, failure to obey an order from a peace officer regardless of how insignificant you are, littering, public urination, noise violations, those are the kinds of offenses 
that don't present a, any great risk to the community whatsoever. What we're saying in House Bill 1225 is you have to be released immediately without posting money bail. The simplest, pettiest of offenses, you shouldn't be held because you're too poor to pay to get out. Thank you. Thank you for the explanation. We appreciate you being here and, and giving us that, um, that detail. Thank you. Um, so we have uh, Judge Spawn here because you know, she presides over the Denver County Court. And uh, I was just hoping that she might explain, you might explain how the court works um, in connection with these issues, um, how, how you all do bail and, and how that process works. Well, and thank you. I appreciate sure. the opportunity. One thing I would just share that anything I, I talk about today, um, we cannot take all the credit for any policy that we've worked on because there's many, many stakeholders in Denver who've come together to work on these issues and also people before me. When I was appointed, it was one of, and our, our, we have a very diverse bench. We have a bench who very much cares about people over incarceration issues and it's been a priority priority for us. What we did when we, um, about 22 years ago, is we put together a symposium at the law school and we partnered with the law school. And we brought people from all over the United States to really look at over incarceration issues. And one of the speakers we brought was from California, Mrs. Burton, becoming Mrs. Burton. And we wanted her to talk about just her life where she was over incarcerated for, what well, she spent I think 10 prison sentences and the real issue that was underlying for her was trauma. And they were, you know, 10, 10 different sentences that had to do with uh, substance abuse issues. And we really, and now she got out and she started a nonprofit and she has changed so many women's lives. And we brought her to kind of kick off, and we had all of our stakeholders there. We had the Public Defender's Office, the DAs, our pretrial services, all of our judges, all of the clerks, to really just set the tone for two days where we can sit and look at over incarceration issues. We brought people, the experts who've done rigorous studies to show if you keep somebody in jail for 24 hours, if they're picked up on a bond, and you can get them before a judge, you can create an opportunity for them to post bond. Um, they will return to court, recidivism rates are not very high, and also um, it doesn't impact their life that much. Not saying that incarceration in one night doesn't impact their lives, but if you hold people for two days, it changes their lives forever. It makes them lose their jobs, it catapults them into homelessness, and so we brought all of those people together so we could really sit down and think together as a city. And that was kind of our jumping off part from there. One thing when Mrs. Burton came, what she asked for is that she um, go with Judge Faye to our Denver County Jail, to the, to the female part of the um, jail. And she wanted to meet every single female that was in the jail and give them her book. And that's how we started on Sunday. So it's been always a very important issue to us. I know several years ago when we started looking at bonds and bond issues, I think we were at about 14% PR bonds, and this is before I was a presiding judge. And Judge Marcucci worked really hard to, to bring people together in pretrial services and have different instruments so we could change that. Today, if you look at all of our felonies, um, I think our felonies right now are at 68% PR bonds, which is significant. We're leading in the state. It doesn't mean we don't look at safety because our community has a right to be safe. We have a number of instruments who are, are doing assessments for us, and on any given day, we have 2,500 people out on bond in the city county of, of Denver. So it's been a big priority for us. In our court, um, our judges, for a very long time, uh, 
I, I can think of several of the judges that are sitting there. We have been very keenly aware that we don't want people who are trespassing. We don't want people who are, have uh, small crimes to not get PR bonds. The case that you talked about is because I think it was Judge Simonette's case. In Denver, there's an ordinance, and it says that there are certain case types that even if the judge wants to give a 100% PR bond, the judge does not have the discretion. The city attorney has the right to object. So out of frustration, when the city, and there's nothing the judge can do, so the judge a lot of times would put that at an amount so low so they could give the person an opportunity where maybe they were asking for a $500 bond. So a lot of times those we're working within parameters that are beyond our control. We have done a number of things um, in our city, just we, we, before even all the laws passed, which are, you know, very important legislation, we run weekend court on Saturday and Sunday. We run courts, two courts, every Saturday and Sunday. Because, and I think we're, I'm not sure if any other jurisdictions are doing that right now, but the reason Very we- Very few do, and that's uh, a good thing for Denver. And the reason we do that is because we don't want people to wait till Monday to come and see a judge. And we're running two courtrooms at the same time with the help of the public defenders and the DAs, mm -hmm. and we're processing those cases. Because once we set the bond, we're, and we've actually been able to lower our hours. We get done much earlier than historically um, because of the fact that we're able to run courts on the weekends, and that's always been a priority for us. Uh, the other thing that we worked really hard on is a couple years ago, and again, I can't take the credit, was a number of stakeholders in Denver, is we have an outreach court where you know a lot of people that had low-level crimes that were chronically homeless were just getting picked up on bond, um, you know, FTA warrants is what I would call them, and going into jail, they can't take, you know, everything they own uh, with them in the jail, and it's really a hardship on them. So we have, every other Wednesday, we have a court, uh, outreach court, it's at the rescue mission, and it is, this year I think we've already served, we've taken care of 1,400 warrants, those are people who've not had to go into the Denver County Jail, and we take care of all the warrants, we pull all their cases, they do community service right there, so they're giving back to the community and they are they able to take care of their cases. Last year I think we did about 2,000 and the year before um, we had just started it off. So those issues are very important to us. They're um, things that we're keenly aware of and they're definitely a focus for our bench. Thank you, Judge Spahn, I appreciate that. Um, does any other board member have any questions for um, either Denise Mays or uh, Judge Teresa Spahn? No? Nothing? It's an easy crowd. I like that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know, I do have a question. I don't know uh, whether it's not, you know, probably a good question for you, Judge Spahn. Um, what are the options or what does classify as a low-level offense, right? Because I know there's a certain amount of um, interpretation in that low-level offense, but just to give us an idea of what that looks like outside of the ones that have been mentioned here, what would that look like? I think, you know, obviously domestic violence is something very separate and very different, so I'm going to set those cases aside. But if you sit in our courts, especially uh, 2100, and you watch or you sit in any of our general sessions courts, those are in Denver, kind of the, you know, the different, I mean, different uh, misdemeanor type cases I can think of, or if you sit in our other courtrooms, um, you will see, especially in 2100, that the vast majority are really PR bonds. If you look at our felony court, where the, which are the much more serious cases, even there we're at about 68% um, PR bonds. I was trying to pull the stats on the lower level cases that we have yeah. that are in our different courts because 
they're much higher, but I couldn't get those in time. But they're, you know, if they, we're at 68% for felonies. Um, if you just come into 2100 and watch it, if it's not a domestic violence, you're likely to get a PR bond. And actually, we've, got, we've done a lot of policy change, too. On all traffic cases, along like maybe two years ago, we have worked with all of our magistrates and all of our judicial officers that if it's a traffic case or anything like that, we don't want people to go in the Denver County Jail. Safe, I mean, if there is a safety issue, that's different. On those low-level cases, that those are not safety issues. And we have a firm policy on a traffic, even if you chronically FTA, you get a PR bond. And those are, th we under handle 150,000 cases a year, but people who can't make it to traffic court are not somebody we want in the Denver County Jail. And so we do not issue, um, we, are, we aggressively issue PR bonds in that. Thank you. Can I offer one, just one yes. thing? Maybe it's a little bit of my question too. I think it's always interesting that DV is always segregated out, if you will, because at the end of the day, you can have a DV charge, but if you can afford the bond, you're getting out. So this notion that we say, oh, DV cases are handled separately. What we really mean is DV cases of people with money and people without. Because if you can afford the bond, it doesn't matter how severe your DV case is. Yes. You're paying and you're getting out. It's the poor ones that stay in jail. Yes. I mean, that's just, that's just the way it works. That's the way the system works. Well, I would just go to say that if you look at the 68% the that we have, there are a lot of DV cases where we're assessing risk, we're working in the community, and many, many people, I, I understand that, but um, I'm not saying that those, I don't want anyone to think that the DV cases don't get PR bonds, because they do. Thank you. What happened to the... What happened to the, the $30 fine that they were taking up front? What happened to that because it goes into the, uh, supposed to be for mental health services and things like that? Where does, does that money still come out or is it, it's not? From, it's been, from the offender or yes, from the, um, the offender, yeah. uh, or the defendant? Um, mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I think what was happening is uh, taking that money off the top. Um, and so if they didn't have money to pay bond, then if they didn't have the money to pay that, it would be something that would follow them throughout their court case, which would happen in any instance. There are several different places throughout the court process where, where the county or the city or the state can collect their fees. Mm -hmm. They don't have to take it off first and not let them bond out. And that's kind of what we're saying in 191 is you have a court proceeding to go through, so you can, there's still opportunities for the state or the county or the city to get some of those fees. They just don't get to get them on the front end and have you stay in jail until you can pay them. I think that's the only, that's the only difference. And mind you, in the Mickey Howard case, ultimately his case was dismissed. So the irony that he would have stayed in jail and had to pay all these fines and fees when in fact, the charges were dropped against him eventually. And Denise, I would like to say this. Um, the minute that case you brought that to our attention with Lauren Smith, the minute you brought that to our attention, we literally, I entered an order forthwith that no one be held. I, I wasn't aware of those fees. I'm not saying I shouldn't be. I entered an order forthwith, thanks to your help, that that no one was going to be held because they couldn't make a $30 fine, and then we immediately went in with my court administrator and changed the ordinance so people would not be held. That's so, absolutely true. With the help of the city attorney's office, right. that came to a quick resolution. And think that was 
great, great teamwork. <laughs> it just took a little lawsuit, but you know, we're all, <laughs> we're, we're all about that. <laughs> it's okay. I don't think I was the party to the lawsuit. No, you were not. I was not the party to the lawsuit. No, you weren't. No, you, you definitely were not. You definitely were not. Uh, Dutch Spawn has done some good work, so I don't want to take away from that at all. Absolutely. Um, I think one follow-up question I have is just basically if th these laws go into effect when, Denise? Um, uh, both of them are in effect already, uh, portions of them. I think the only aspect of 191 that isn't in effect is uh, one of the things that Judge Spawn referenced, and, and Denver is unique this way and wonderful, is that there are many um, counties that do not have six or seven day a week court. Mm -hmm. And so you do have to wait, if you're arrested on a Friday, you have to wait till Monday till your first proceeding or your first appearance. That's the if, a, if it's a three day weekend, you gotta wait till Tuesday. Um, so a portion of 191 is studying how we can do six or seven day a week court throughout the state. And so that portion of the bill is not yet in effect. Terrific, thank you. Um, I think at this point, um, in the interest of time and our um, guest's time, I'd like to open up for very few minutes to see if there's anyone in the audience who actually has a question for Judge Spahn or for Ms. Mays. If you do, um, there's a microphone up front here. And what I'd ask you is if you please just give your name and, and ask your question. And I, I, again, in the interest of time, I'm going to ask you to, to please limit your comments um, to, to no more than a couple of minutes. Thank you. My name is Wes Gary. I'm with Together Colorado, which is a uh, faith-based, nonpartisan community activist group. And I thank all of you for what you're doing to help uh, improve our criminal justice system. Um, and I timed the questions. It's a minute and 15 seconds. <laughs> I believe that the war on drugs in the United States has resulted in lots of unnecessary incarceration and that comp competition for selling illegal drugs on the street causes a lot of gang violence, similar to the gang violence that occurred in the 1920s and 30s because of the prohibition of alcohol. I also believe our inability to regulate the quality and the potency of illegal drugs causes a lot of overdoses and medical emergencies. For these reasons, I am convinced now that it is time to try legalizing some of the more popular recreational drugs like cocaine, meth, heroin, and other opioids. Legalizing these drugs would allow the government to regulate how they're made and distributed. It would reduce prices to where gangs can't make a profit on them. Of course, it would allow taxes to be collected on them. I also think that addicts should be able to get a prescription for drugs if they agree to be under medical supervision. So this is a question for Judge Bond, but anybody can respond. Uh, do you agree with any of this idea? If not, what is your most radical proposal for fixing the war on drugs? Well, obviously, I mean, that's an issue that we're working with right now in our city because the felonies, uh, formerly F4 possession cases, are now going to be misdemeanor cases in Denver. And what has been a big priority for us is to see how we can really help people and not get, I mean, how can we make a difference in their lives if there's a chance and not make it an incarceration issue? And so we're kind of looking nationally uh, to see where our best practices. But one thing I think that has been a priority for us that we ask in our budget is treatment. Tre treatment is what's lacking and treatment is what we need in our city. And so that's really a big priority for us. Thank you. 
Thank you, Mr. Geary. You bet. Could, could I just address that for a little bit? You know, it, um, Judge Spawn is correct. It's not just in Denver that uh, drug possession is defelonized. That's, that's statewide. That was House Bill 1263 um, that passed out this legislative session. And I'll tell you, you would have thought that with that bill, there were going to be meth and coke trucks at the Civic Center Park. That is how vigorously district, certain district attorneys, um, law enforcement fought that bill. So that was radical. Mm. And, that all, and all that bill said was for simple, the simplest of drug possession, you would, be a, you would have a misdemeanor instead of a felony, because there's lots of repercussions that come with felonies, not only longer prison sentences. But the second piece of House Bill 1263 said is we're going to prioritize treatment, which is really what you ought to be doing in any sort of drug possession case. And frankly, not e I shouldn't even say in all of them. Some people want to just use drugs. Doesn't mean they're addicted. Doesn't mean they have some illness. Some people just want to use drugs, whatever. Um, I don't, but that's not the point. <laughs> so I think that um, having a different orientation about what drug use and what drugs are being used is something that we got to continue to talk about. Because if defelonization is radical, we got, we got a lot of work to do. Thank you. Thanks. Appreciate that. Thank you for the question, Mr. Geary. Hello, my Hi. name is Karen Sodaro. Sodaro. I am an activist and civil rights activist. I believe I've been before you in court. I'm not sure about that, but I've been through a lot of your courts. Um, a couple things, really quick. I'm not, you know, I don't have anything written down and stuff. But um, like one thing, I think we should um, on the police side, like DPD and stuff. There are so many things, if you, look, if you look poor or homeless, basically homeless, you get arrested for much minor, minor offenses than if you see someone that looks like they're not homeless do the same thing and not get arrested for. That is blatantly true, and we've seen it throughout the city in our organization. Um, also, the court system, it, 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 we've seen sort of the same thing. But I've seen in many thing, ways and know many people that have gone through the drug courts. It seems like if you have a problem with drugs or alcohol, you get all these chances. You have the drug court, you get all these chances. But if you're homeless or mental health, mental health basically, you don't get all these chances. The mental health is abused throughout the system, throughout in the jail and the judicial system. They don't know how they, they don't know their rights, they don't know how to react. And most of the public defenders that help these people just are pushing, take a deal, take a deal. And they don't know any better, they take a deal. And they get criminalized for doing these same simple things that they should not be arrested for in the same place, you know, mm -hmm. at the same time. And, and uh, you don't see other people with money and stuff going through the system like this and having to go up before a judge or, and, and, and stuff because they're not, it's like selective persecution, prosecution, persecution, whatever you want to say, however you want to say it. And they're, they're targeted individuals in the city of Denver have been that way for years. I've been fighting for them for years. And the judicial system, the judges explain it to them right there, but they don't understand. They're mentally ill. Mm. They don't understand that, and they're just being pushed to take a deal. Right. But if you, if you choose
choose to use drugs or alcohol, you get all these chances around the world through drug court and stuff. I know many people that have many, many chances because they use drugs. Oh, we need to help them. But it's like, screw the homeless, screw the poor. That isn't right. The judicial system is broken. This should not be happening. And DPD should not be arresting people for these petty, petty offenses where they can be talked to or even seek help. The officers don't do that and, and right. hand out information about the, the stuff. They just move them along. There's not the help for these people in this system, okay. and it's wrong, and it needs to be dealt with. And DB, DB, the officers, District 6 mainly, needs to stop harassing them. These are people too. And in, even through the judicial system, they get treated like crap. They really do. Thank and, you. Um, Thank you for your it's comments. Just wrong. And how they're treated. I've seen how they're treated in jail still. Yeah. After all the revised how they're supposed to act and do in jail. Mm -hmm. But they're, they're abused by the system and they're abused in jail. And they are sick and they need help. Thank you. Thank you. So do you want to comment or respond? Thank you. We appreciate your comments. Yes, sir. Hi. My name is Abity and I'm the Liberty Freak. I am an activist and a protester in this city, okay? So I go through the Denver judicial system a lot, okay? I'm constantly being persecuted for what we know as what we call contempt of cop charges, the typical disturbing the peace, um, you know, uh, harassment, whatever, simply for what we say, okay? Um, not only do what we, for what we say, and ma'am, I want to thank you, Ms. Mace, for everything that your department and, and what you guys have done for us. So I want to thank you because we fight for that all the time. Um, the city criminalizes us and makes us seem like we are violent, crazy, terrorist, whatever, okay? I help feed the homeless every Sunday. I cook for them all day long on Saturday. I also roll cigarettes and hand them out. Okay, um, some of this comes because it's just donated from people who watch what I do and they say, hey, here's five bags of cigarettes this big or whatever, do that thing you do, right? You know, and, uh, but the city makes me look like this crazy criminal, right? Like this to totally violent, scary individual, okay? Um, the city has some- Do you have a question, sir? Okay, yeah, my question is, what are we going to do the city has an ordinance, or I don't know what it's called, it's a mandate, I guess. It is called Chief Justice Directive 0404, and it comes from the Chief Justice of Colorado. Okay, uh, all these things that they're doing for the homeless and, and the poor is great, but what's happening is that when they are being criminalized, when you go to the public defender's office, I wanna know what's being done about the fact that they are not obeying a simple 23-page directive, which is called Chief Justice Directive 0404. Their forms are incorrect. They hide the form that gives the rights to the people, okay? If you were to question this and raise your voice about it, you will have 20 cops standing in that room with you threatening you know, your liberty and safety and you know, threatening violence on you, you know, because I spoke up. You know, and mind you, we are being denied by the receptionist. Not even a lawyer. Sir, so sorry, I, I, can I, wanna, I ask so a clarifying I wanna, I, question to make sure I yeah. understand your question? Um, when you say they are not complying with the directive, who's they? I apologize. It would be the public defender's office or the city, okay? Um, I take it up to the, the highest person in this, I believe, is, um, um, I can't remember her name right now, which is the chief public defender's office, okay? Mm -hmm. She's been sued for this 
-hmm. They're still doing the same thing. I stand outside and I've recorded many, many days over months of, they actually have on the, on the front door of the public defender's office, it says that the requirements for being able to obtain a public defender are those things which are expressly excluded in Chief Justice Directive 0404. Mm -hmm. In other words, that they're not allowed to even ask you that, right? They, they can't ask you, do you have TAMF? You know, do you, uh, you know, are you on government assistance? Mm -hmm. Okay? They want you to prove that you are go in government assistance. Mm -hmm. I have a friend who is serving five years in jail. They expected him to bring notarized statements of the money that was given to him in his cup from mm -hmm. holding a sign. So they expect us to go, excuse me, ma'am, thank you for that 39 cents. If you wouldn't mind standing over here to the side with my notary so that I can notarize and we can verify that, you know, you gave me this right. money. So I, I think show. I understand the you question. You see what I'm saying? Which, which is really absurd. So, so I want to know, who do we go to? Right. Who do right. we speak to? Who do, you know, when, when this situation arises? Because it's a guaranteed loss as a, def, you know, as a defendant. Right. So you're going to go there, you're guaranteed to pay the fines, do whatever they, they, they throw I think you. I think we understand your but question. Here's the difference. We're, we're running out of time. Sure. So, um, and it's just, let and me it's see just, if it's, I can it's find speci it. It's specific we're, we're, to us, too. Yeah. So. so the one thing I was going to say, just real quickly, yeah. if, yeah. if you don't mind. I want to understand. Um, no, I just wanted to know if anyone And did, I apologize so, for taking so much time. I just wasn't scripted. A chief justice directive is not applicable to the city of Denver because that, that's a city, that's, that's a municipal court, and a chief justice directive is a state court mandate. So I, I don't really know if the municipal because public defender's office has its own way of, if, you're, if your question is how do you get public defender assistance, right. that has nothing to do with the chief justice in Denver. Right. That's only state and county court, but according, not According municipal to the court. city, though, but according to the city and their policies, okay, they have and already... And I don't know what they, those are. They have agreed to follow that mandate. Okay. Yeah, so that okay, I don't so know. So if you've agreed to it and you use their forms and everything, then, then follow it. You know, don't alter it and make it to, you know, because obviously if you're asking me if I have government assistance, you're making a judgment on that. And the reason why it's mandated, you know, it says sure. it can be asked because, you know, if, if you're judged on that, then, you know, you actually right. lose that right, right? So yeah, that that's makes why sense. I, that right. I hear you loud and clear. So I don't think anyone here has the answer to your question, okay. but we'll get your information. I just, we'll want, I just sure. wanted to bring it more to than the a question. I just wanted attention. to bring it to somebody's Thank attention you. that matters and that actually makes a change. Thank you guys for the change that you've made. Thank you. So Thank you. Thank you, sir. Um, any other questions? Well, if there aren't any other questions around um, the criminal justice reform measures that were passed um, this last legislative session, and I want to thank again uh, Denise Mays and, and Judge Spawn for being here as our uh, subject matter experts. Thank you very thank much. Thank you uh, very much. Well, we're, we're going to shift our discussion. We're still in the, the, the lane of uh, and realm of speaking about criminal justice reform, um, but we do have a very special guest who is here to talk to us a little bit about a different program that's being um, implemented. Oh, there you are. I was looking for you. Uh, to, to, to talk to us a little bit about a, a unique program um, that it, we're seeing and be used and utilized in New Orleans, and something worth bringing to the public's attention um, that we, we think that is worth sharing. So um, I think with that, I'd like to ask uh, Dr. McGee to, to come up and join us. Um, thank you, So and, and the microphone is, is yours. Yeah, okay, if you'd like to stand, that's great. We should just get you a mic. Good evening, thank you for inviting me. I, I moved because that light was really in, um, I apologize, I sound really congested. Woke up this morning with a really stuffy head. Um, I'm happy to be back in Denver. 
I'm originally from New Orleans. I lived in Fort Collins for three years as I pursued my doctorate degree, and then I moved to Denver in August of 2004, and I remained in Denver until December 2014. So I've been back home in New Orleans since January 2015. My role with the New Orleans Police Department, I'm the Academic Administrator of the Education and Training Division. We're responsible for initial recruit training, and we're also responsible for continuing professional education. How many of you knew that police officers have continuing professional education? Police officers are lifelong learners. So when we say continuing professional education, what do you think about? Do you automatically think about recertification for what? Firearms, driving? Well, it's beyond that. Our continuing professional education focuses upon our mission, which is constitutionally based, bias-free, community-grounded policing. And so because of that, every year our officers, in addition to those traditional certifications that everyone thinks about when they think about law enforcement officers, in addition, they have training in legal updates. In New Orleans Police Department, our officers have training every year in crisis intervention. We focus upon how do we interact with members of the communities who have mental health issues? So we also, in addition to officers having crisis intervention training, we have a cadre of crisis intervention trained officers so that on every platoon, there are at least two officers in every district who are, who are CIT trained. So if an officer gets a call for service and it's assessed that the person has mental health issues, then someone with that expertise is brought in. And so tonight I'm here to talk about EPIC, which is Ethical Police, which is an acronym for Ethical Policing is Courageous. And EPIC is based on um, the research that talks about what happens when someone in a profession makes a decision and takes action that is unethical. Now, I'm speaking from the perspective of law enforcement, but I also spent five years at the University of Colorado School of Medicine at the Anschutz campus. And we know that in health professions and in every profession, there are situations that arise where, I'm gonna use the terminology that I heard in the School of Medicine, a workaround where you know someone on a shift is not quite up to par, but everybody kind will kind of work around to compensate for that person, right? Now, that's not just in health professions. It's not just in law enforcement. It's in every profession. But because of the interactions between law enforcement officers in the community, it is important that we grasp that issue at the core. And at the core, when a police officer dons his or her uniform and goes to work, they're just like anybody else on the job. And when they go to work, they bring themselves with them. So in New Orleans, we also focus, as the Academy Academic Director, we focus on teaching and learning in all three of the learning domains. That's cognitive, affective, and psychomotor. And in law enforcement, you think about the psychomotor domain, driving, firearms, using um, 
the weapons on the duty rig, right? And we know about the cognitive domain, you have to know the law. You have to know the NOPD policy. You have to know the difference between a municipal and a state charge, right? However, the effective domain is where law enforcement has struggled. What is the effective domain? That is the emotional and the mental health, right? And so let's go back to that officer. He or she, they've donned their uniform. They're going to work. But just like everyone else, when they go to work, inside of them are the issues of their life. Maybe they had a tough time with the spouse at home. Maybe they had a sick child and they were up all night. All of these circumstances affect how a person interacts and engages at work. But with law enforcement, because we are charged with protecting and serving, you still have to protect and serve even though you've been up all night with a sick child or maybe you work the detail or maybe you have a sick elderly parent or, or, or the same situations that affect all of us in life. So I'm using that to set the context for why EPIC was so necessary. It was necessary to help to, serve, to save the careers of well-intentioned, hardworking law enforcement officers. Now, some of the research that we use is on active bystandership. We know what that means, right? Active and passive bystandership. You've seen the research. You've watched a show with John Canoas, right? What would you do, <laughs> right? Something happens, you know it's wrong. How many of you can find voice and take a stand, right? So the same thing is what we're talking about in EPIC with law enforcement officers serving together. If you know that the person you're working with has had a rough night or is struggling and you see them about to do something, you can intervene. So it is a peer intervention program for officers developed by officers in conjunction with the community. So on our committee, we would have um, some of the persons who just spoke some of our harshest critics were a part of the committee that worked on the foundation for the EPIC program. So the research around active and passive bystandership, something happens, I don't know where you work. Wherever you work, something's going on. Let's make it something small. It's back to school season, office supplies. Your child needs some of those yellow highlighters. Well, just go over to the soccer room. Imagine if everybody who worked at the company got their school supplies that their child needed from that stock room. Now, somebody might say, well, that's not right. Let's take it from the company. And others, well, I work hard here, and I stay late, I come early, and I make a fair wage, but you know, it's not that hard, right? But we know that those things build up, and it becomes a problem. Ethical policing, when police officers are at work, when I always say to the officers that when someone dials 911, they're usually not having a good day. And if, if an officer who reports to a scene is at a space emotionally, or even in terms of their mental health and their well-being, or sometimes they're physically sick. How many of you go to work when you're just not quite feeling well, but you're gonna push through? Officers do the same thing, right? And so whatever, the, I'm trying to get you to understand, this is about the human condition. 
police officers or just like everyone else. I'm going to walk over because I need to hear you. They're the only ones that, because of their safety or whatever, they're the only ones that can pull out a gun and kill somebody and not pay for So it. let's be clear. Let's break. Let's let's break down that. Let's break down the statement that you say. And I want to be fair to you because I know the protocol here is that there will be a time for you to ask questions. But because I'm from the South, I'm going to be polite and listen to you. But I want you to be polite and respectful to me. Okay. So let's take what he said. Yes. That's why I said our officers are well-versed in constitutional policing. They have the legal right based on the behavior or the inappropriate behavior of someone to restrict their freedom. And because of that, we're very clear. We want to make sure that our officers are cognizant of their behavior and so that they anchor themselves in what doing what's right. And sometimes, the most well-intentioned person may not be feeling well, the situation may get out of control. And what we're saying is that we have given our officers the tools to intervene with one another to prevent them, even when they're provoked, right? Because sometimes you're just standing up giving a presentation, someone might interrupt you, you might feel a little provoked, right? But officers are well-trained to stay within the bounds of the law. But what I'm saying is that when a situation arises, when someone is provoked, we're using this process for officers to give each other the tools and the space to intervene. So let me give you an example, real life example. So most of you are familiar with the French Quarter. You've seen Bourbon Street on television. So there was, we have um, a downtown development district where officers are detailed to the French Quarter. There's the 8th district that men are patrol the 8th district, which is the French Quarter, but there's additional officers there. So an officer who happened to be a female noticed a vehicle double parked outside of a store. She proceeded to say to the driver, even though he had his hazards on, which means what? Oh, I'm going to run right in and I'll be right out. You're parked illegally, sir. I need you to move your automobile. I have to just run it. She said, sir, you're parked illegally. You need to move your automobile. Oh, I'll be right. Sir, you're parked illegally. I need you to move the vehicle now, or I will write a ticket. He turns around and says to the officer, you don't know who I am. I work for city councilman blank, 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 and I am da, 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 and I will do this. She immediately called for backup because that unit at that time didn't have BWCs, but now they do. Body worn cameras, yes. So she called for backup. Another officer from the district came. He proceeded to approach the gentleman. You are parked illegally. We need you to move the vehicle now. And because you did not heed the warnings, you will be issued a ticket. So then he began to berate the female officer. And she was getting very upset and agitated and started to pace. And then the other officer started to put space between himself by using his body between that person who now was being very loud and belligerent and trying to make a point because he thought he just wanted to run in the store and she should understand, right? 
So the officer gets between them, and then the gentleman says, and you, and what's your name, and what's your badge number, and who's your supervisor? I'm going to see that you're written up. So now she's getting more and more agitated, and her partner looks at her, and he just whispers, epic. Epic. And she's agitated, and she's annoyed, and he goes, and he whispers in her ear, epic. Take a moment. And she stepped back, and she walked away. And he, the other officer, wrote the ticket, presented it to the gentleman. He signed it, Donald Duck. <laughs> but on the BWC, on the body-worn camera, he had yelled. He worked for the city, identified the city council person. Um, this story that I'm telling, our mayor, Latoya Cantrell, told this story at our EPIC conference this summer. And what she said is that, and that person who formerly worked for the city of New Orleans <laughs> was so agitated, even though he signed the ticket, Daffy Duck, or Donald Duck, and took the ticket, on Monday he called the mayor's office. And he said to one of her staff members, I need to report a police officer who was rude and disrespectful to me. And the person in the mayor's office, being well-trained by the mayor, said, sir, you want the mayor to stop what she's doing? To talk to you about an incident with a police officer? The mayor stands with the police department, and she believes that that officer was probably working within his duties. If you have a complaint, go to the Citizens Oversight Committee. So he continues to yell and scream. The person in the mayor's office calls his supervisor, and that person is no longer employed by the city of New Orleans. So the two things that happened there is one, the first female officer who was insulted and belittled could have done the very human thing and responded negatively to that person. But because her peer intervened and whispered in her ear, Three times he had to say it, but when he said epic, she understood that lifeline was coming to her. Because if you retaliate, now you have a case against you. If you retaliated, you are not being a professional. If you retaliate, you're dishonoring the uniform and the charge that you took. And so that's what we train our officers to do, to intervene for one another because they matter to each other. And we're also concerned about the emotional well-being and the mental health of our officers. We know the statistics that most law enforcement officers within three years of retirement will die either by suicide, heart attack, or some other tragic illness. Officers suffer with PTSD because they suck it up and they keep going. But what we're saying is we want to pay attention. Just because you, not just because, but because you chose an honorable profession to put on a uniform and to go out and pledge yourself at the risk of your life, that you pledge to protect and serve the public that you're still a human, you still have all of those other personal issues, but when you go to work, we expect the highest level of professionalism. And so we give our officers the tools to intervene with one another. So EPIC training, every officer in the New Orleans Police Department has received the basic 
eight-hour epic core training. Every new recruit receives the eight-hour basic core training. We have attached epic for our recertification to our officer assistance and wellness training. So we have an officer assistance and wellness program that talks about if you're having a rough day, that you can go to your rank and say, you know, something's going on and you don't have to divulge and you can say, I need officer assistance and they're not penalized for that. So we have built in, based on the research and with community input, what does it take for us to police ourselves? Because we believe that our officers are there to protect and serve at the highest level of professionalism. So that's what ethical policing is about. I have brochures for you. I also have my personal card um, that I'm happy to share with you. The one thing that I'd like you to think about and to take away is that. Think about a time um, when you were employed, If because um, some of you may be blessed enough to be retired or you may have just been born with that silver spoon in your mouth and you're just, as the young people would say, living your best life, doing what you do, how you do it. But imagine a time when you were in a situation when you were challenged, right? Our buttons get pushed all the time. Right, I taught school. I taught first grade, fourth grade, sixth grade, science, middle school science. I taught at the University of Colorado Denver in a teacher education program for five years. And then I did academic research. And on any given day, someone could say something to me that would be insulting, demeaning, disrespectful, but I still responded as a professional. And, um, that's the grace that I would like to see the community offer to police officers, not rush to judgment, and to realize that police officers are individuals with families and responsibilities just as everyone else. And what we're doing is we're being proactive. We're saying to our officers, we're saying that if you know, for example, let's talk about domestic violence. Some officers may have a trigger because of some traumatic event in their family background with domestic violence. Some officers may have grown up in a household with domestic violence. When you work with someone and you know their triggers, if you're on a domestic violence scene, um, and you can look at our website, I think it's epicnopd.org, and you'll see some testimonial from, testimonials from officers who testified that they noticed a pattern. If someone was on a certain call, they automatically would think that the male is the aggressor and you know, took sort of a, a really um, tough stand in a domestic violence situation with a male and a female. And just talk to the person and say, you know, hey bro, I notice every time we're on a DV scene, you know, you automatically, because the law is to what? Separate both parties in here the stories of both. And so what one officer realized is that it was a trigger. And so if it was a domestic violence call, that person had to do a bit of self-reflection before rushing to judgment. And I would challenge any of you that whatever field that you're in, that you've had a moment when you may be rushed to judgment or you weren't as reflective. And what we're saying is that because of the high pressure that police officers work under, we know that they need specific tools to check 
their own emotional register and to know where they're standing and to have a process by which to intervene. And also in EPIC, um, if an officer intervenes and stops someone, they realize they're saving that person's career and they're also really doing what we're called to do and that is to protect and serve. So that's EPIC. Thank you, Dr. McGee. Um, I think the board ha may have some questions for you and then we'll, we'll open up to the public. Um, okay, the light is just getting to me, so don't <laughs> mind me. Um, can you talk to us about what kind of data you've collected to demonstrate the effectiveness of this program in reducing use of force incidents, say, mm -hmm. or whatever? Good question. And it's the first we get, right? because everyone wants to reduce, and to know that we're having an impact on the use of force. Or any, I mean, uh, anything that's, you know. Right, so uh, what we're finding is, number one, because academically, you know, um, I have done program evaluation. We know that we're in the early stages, and what we're looking at right now is just anecdotal results based upon cultural changes. Now, you've heard about the blue wall, right? where police officers protect each other no matter what. Well, what we're finding is that we are saying to the officers that your role is to protect the city and the citizens of New Orleans. Your role is to protect what is right. And so in terms of outcomes, what we're finding is that um, officers who are veterans and seasoned officers and may have been in service for over 15 years when our training wasn't as intentional as it is now, that it took more for them to come on board. And because of that, um, we're noticing that the more, um, the newer officers with three years or less, their, their, their expectations and their understanding of how to treat the public is completely different. I'm, I'm sure that most of you are well aware of um, the critical incidents that happened after Hurricane Katrina, where citizens were murdered and, and the officers covered up for one another. We make sure to talk about that and to remind our officers that that type behavior is not tolerated in the New Orleans Police Department. So to give you an example of what I call anecdotal, um, we have mixed jurisdiction service. So we have Louisiana State Police and we may have someone from um, another parish, it's a county in Louisiana. Um, we may have officers working together in private details and in other situations. Um, about a year ago, a person was arrested and they were handcuffed, but they were resisting. But that person was handcuffed. And while the person was handcuffed, someone who was from another jurisdiction kicked the handcuffed individual. And an officer from New Orleans Police Department said, hey, we don't do that here. We don't do that. So that's our best example, that our officers what we're doing is changing the culture of policing and how officers interact with one another. Thank you. Does anyone else have a question? Uh, we'll go to the public in a second, okay? Thank you. 
Thank you so much, Dr. McGee, for your presentation. Um, in the pamphlet, it says that there are built-in procedural incentives for the members of the department. Could you say what that means? So for officers, so let's go back to reality. If someone is handcuffed or in any way detained and an officer uses excessive force, under our policy, that officer and others who are there who don't do anything are subject to disciplinary action. Mm. And so the built-in incentives are that if you intervene or if you um, try to stop someone and they still take action, then it's a mitigating factor when that case is investigated. So you know that when a use of force case is investigated, everybody present, right, is investigated. And so if you try to intervene, but someone still continues to do something that was inappropriate, you, because you're present, are a part of the problem and you're investigated by Public Integrity Bureau. But in that investigatory process, if, if the BWC or anything else shows that you tried to intervene, you tried to de-escalate, you tried to defuse it, then you are not, you're, that's considered in your case. So that's what that refers to. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Dr. McGee, I have uh, yes. one question, and this is, kind of ties in here in Denver, we have what's called the Back to Basics program. Uh, and I don't have the exact dates or time. I don't know the length of it, but- Is that Ty? You're, you're ty yeah, mm -hmm. that's Ty Anthony. I met him. Yeah, so the Back to Basics program is similar, mm -hmm. right? And then um, a district, I believe District 6, um, has public, uh, has mental health professionals that do ride-alongs with mm -hmm. six, I think, and two, in which when they uh, encounter uh, a citizen that's having some type of mental distress, um, they partner with the city to have them available. One question I have, something that you've mentioned, uh, one component, though, that, that we don't have, um, is, as far as I'm aware, is the citizen component when you're constructing this program. And I'm interested in the types of methods and what uh, the New Orleans Police Department did to bring more of the citizenry into that process in, uh, in setting up the EPIC program. So um, historically, and just in all honesty and transparency, the New Orleans Police Department is under a federal consent decree. EPIC came about not because of the consent decree, but it came about from some conversations. Um, Mary Howell is a civil rights attorney who's um, represented many families in use of force cases against, she sued the police department um, in a very um, critical case from the 1990s where a young woman, um, her death was actually ordered by a road police officer who's now on death row. And um, Mary Howell represented her family. And so Mary Howell has been um, the voice against excessive force and law enforcement. She sits on that committee. Ted Quaint is also um, a community activist, strong voice against, um, against excessive force. He sits on that committee. So it was important for us to have the balance that we needed to, well, one of the things that we realized that 
we're allies. Even though, and maybe that's the Southern phenomenon, uh, maybe that's just the down-home people that we are, but we realize that our strength comes from hearing everything that's said about us and responding to it. And so those persons were a part of the planning committee, the scenarios that were written for the training, they were a part and had voice to it. Um, they gave us information on what felt contrived so that we could be authentic. And so they were welcomed and invited to be a part of the planning. So would you say it was more of a grassroots type effort or was it, did you have that uh, agency from elected officials to try to push that? What side did that come on? I'm just. Um, it was a combination of all of okay. the above. Thank you. And it has, um, it started with one administration and moved through the next mirror administration. Thank you. You're welcome. Any other board members have any questions for Dr. McGee? Thank you, thank you Dr. McGee. Um, You're welcome. I, I guess I'd like to ask if there's any community members that have questions. Um, similar to before, would you please come up to the mic and, and introduce yourself and, and then um, ask your question and um, in the interest of making sure that everyone has time to ask their questions, if you would keep, keep them to, to just a couple minutes, that would be very, very good. Thank you. Good evening. Good evening. My name is Karen Collier. I'm a community activist, and I appreciate you coming and explaining the uh, program that you have in New Orleans. I have a couple questions about um, what's included in that training. Mm -hmm. um, I guess the first question is whether or not you have, there have been revisions perhaps in the hiring process where an assessment is done of uh, to, to uh, assess the uh, mental and emotional worthiness of a person who applies for uh, law enforcement? Well, the psychological, um, the psychological assessment is a part of the process, the hiring process. Every officer, when they're in the recruitment phase, has an extensive background check, mm -hmm. physical, mental, and a psychological battery. Okay. So for example, if, a, if an officer um, or a, a candidate um, revealed that they were in the service and, and had post-traumatic stress disorder, would they uh, perhaps be flagged as a candidate that perhaps wouldn't be um, mentally worthy of, of the uh, force? So first of all, when you're hiring, we follow all of the EEOC laws. So okay. we cannot discriminate against someone because they were in the armed forces. Okay. Right? And so, again, the psychological screening will assess someone's suitability for law enforcement. Okay. And so that's the most information I can give you on that. Um, anyone who served in the armed forces, just like everyone else, is entitled to apply for um, employment anywhere. And mm -hmm. we cannot discriminate on mm -hmm. the basis of that. I so guess it's the psychological assessment that would determine that. I guess I was reflecting on you talking about um, an officer's ability to identify triggers mm -hmm. as a result of what his background may include, that being post-traumatic stress disorder or a trigger with regard to domestic violence in his background. Um, and, and sometimes that takes uh, you know, a lot of, of commitment and years of of therapy to overcome that so mm -hmm. that you can, first of all, identify 
that you have those triggers and then to be able to overcome them in stressful situations. I wonder, you know, is it fair to expect a police officer who's got that kind of background to be able to uh, respond in an appropriate way uh, when they haven't had access to that kind of treatment and have the ability to overcome those, those triggering um, So if I factors. can, I think I'm hearing you say, are you asking about the suitability of one officer to um, assess the mental state or the emotional balance mm -hmm. of another officer? That's not what we're saying. We're saying that if, that if you notice someone is not handling the situation that you can intervene using the tools that they've been trained with to intervene to prevent that behavior. Now, you're going to a deeper end of the spectrum into psychological assessment. I mean, again, I like to contextualize everything into any field, right? Mm -hmm. um, we have in any field, in any work, um, you could be bagging groceries at the supermarket and you know, anything could possibly be a trigger from the past. What I'm saying is that in the capacity of a law enforcement officer in those high pressure situations, we're saying that we're paying attention to the behaviors of our officers. We're paying attention to their mental health and their mental well-being, and we're also looking for patterns of behavior. Now, as far as um, the psychological assessment, that does stand. And officers are applicants are turned around are turned away on a daily basis because they're they're deemed not fit because of the psychological assessment okay so that is a part of the hiring process okay and I think that that part of that process and I want to be clear again about um, PTSD in the military we want to honor everyone and we cannot discriminate and say that and, and just say that any class of individuals applying are not eligible because of something else. Okay. But those, we stand by the recruitment and the hiring process with the psychological assessment. Okay. W one other question, is implicit bias part of this, this particular yes. program? Well, that first of all, um, when I said that our, that our officers follow our philosophy of constitutionally based, bias-free, community-oriented policing. So all of the officers in the New Orleans Police Department um, had a basic eight-hour course on just um, implicit bias. And then every year in our continuing professional education, they have additional training on, on implicit biases. And we also work with advocacy groups from the community about um, the interactions they've had with police officers and any any um, aspect, any demographic in the community who believes that their particular group is being pointed out. We convene focus groups every year as we plan our training for the next, our training for the next year. So we get the input and we also look at our statistics to see if there's a pattern of behavior against any particular demographic. So our okay. officers are trained and retrained. Okay. Continue. Thank you. You're welcome. These lights are killing me. <laughs> <laughs> Hello again. My name is Karen Sidaro. I'm an activist. Nice and, uh, to meet you. You too, ma'am. Uh, thank you for being here. Um, a lot of my activism does have to do with police brutality, and um, 
excessive force. Mm -hmm. um, if um, I may try to get through this without being interrupted and then give you the floor, because I lose my train of thought easily, if that would be all right. If you do um, the same for me, I'll do the same for you. <laughs> um, for me, right off the bat, cops out of the gate know what they are and are not supposed to do. It's clear cut to me. Um, some may have a different attitude, like you said, three years or whatever coming out of the academy, but they get with the veteran police and stuff and they teach them the real ropes, right? Um, they should be held accountable. They are wearing a badge and a gun. You should be ethical because you are the law. You are the law enforcement. You have this high standard of serving and protecting, right? They should, I believe they should not be a cop if their buttons are pushed so easily and if they're triggered so easily. We've seen that in and out through years of activism and just watching, watching them, taping them. And they do behave better when they are on film, when we have YouTubers and such that are right there. And um, they are law enforcement, so they should be held at a higher standard as regular people. Um, um, there are some, and another question to you is. Question. Do you have a question? Yes. One okay. of my questions is, ma'am, is um, what happens after they're hired, maybe they've been on the job for a while, and they are found to have mental illness. I mean, like go off, go yelling at a person, I hate you, I'm gonna hurt you, this and that, and just are go. Are you asking if, yes. if that has happened? Yes, or are you because the happened? ones that we have seen, one in particular, got then two days suspension. New Orleans police officers? Huh? New Orleans police officers? No, here so in Denver. To, here in Denver. I'm speaking about New Orleans police, and I can't but speak to, me, to the this Denver police goes, officers. Yeah. You have, do you have a question about the EPIC program or New Orleans police? Yes, because she, she like asked so what's hiring. Your so my question was, if they passed and, be, you know, the social... They passed the psych eval. Yes, and they're a police officer. Mm -hmm. What happens to them? Because here in Denver, the ones that we've seen don't get, don't have to go back for mental health help or anything. They just so get suspended me, for two okay. days. What what happens with that with your program? So in New Orleans, we have officer assistance program, and I mentioned our continuing professional education. So officers are reminded of the services that are available to them, and they are encouraged to use those services. Also, we have um, insight and early intervening. Um, process where um, supervisors rate officers and through insight and supervisory feedback logs, a supervisor can say to someone, I notice you're taking a lot of sick leave. Is everything okay? Um, I notice you have a pattern of absenteeism. Is anything going on? If um, a supervisor notices someone coming to work disheveled or looking like they're not well rested, then it's up to the supervisor to recommend them to officer assistance program. Can't speak for the Denver Police Department, but we have built in systems to respond to officers when we recognize that something is happening. Well, that would be awesome. So your police department and 
New Orleans? Yes. Must be much better than Denver because we I do not see that Denver. happening in Denver. Okay. Um, and also, um, um, really quick, let me get these slots. There, with, the, with the excessive Thanks. force and stuff that is dealt with, it seems like most most of them are are not held accountable. So it keeps going. It's a pattern so in the DA. So I'll, I'll answer that. And there is someone else waiting. Um, you, I invite you to go to the New Orleans Police Department website. We have our real-time crime data available. Um, the use of force board meets regularly. Just to respond to that. Um, if someone has been deemed um, excessive use of force, then the necessary actions are taken. But in, in our system, we automatically look at our training. So we track trends. So if there's a trend, for example, um, with an issue with handcuffing, unfortunately, it went the other direction for us. Someone's, someone was handcuffed poorly and had not been searched properly and they pulled out a gun and they killed a police officer who was transporting them. And so um, we look at our use of force data and we look for trends and patterns and it comes back to training. So if we, if we see a pattern in terms of excessive force, then it goes back to training. If we, for example, we, um, for our 2020 um, training, we're looking at what happens when someone has passive resistance. Right? Not active resistance, they're not kicking and screaming, they're just sitting there. But they violated some law and they have to be arrested. Then how do you handcuff them, keep that person safe and keep yourself safe? So we have specific training around those issues. So again, I can't speak to the Denver Police Department, but I can tell you that um, we use our use of force data and we have a very um, rigorous and well-vetted use of force policy. It is online and it's available for public view that I would recommend you read it and maybe you know talk to Denver Police Department if there's something that you'd like to see. But again, we work really hard to stay in conversation. We see our community advocates as our allies and they see the New Orleans Police Department as allies, not um, adversaries. And so we work hard to have the conversations to make sure that our training is responsive to the needs of our community. Thank you. Um, really Thank quickly, you, Denver Police Department has gone back for training several times and they still react. <laughs> I can't answer quickly, I'm sorry. I, well, I, I want to just interject real had. quickly and then we do yeah. have and, to move to the next that, person. Um, so I and, will say to you, Ms. Starro, Ms. Starro, I, 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 I haven't had the time to you that. But this, wait. We, we, have a, we have an annual conference, so we'd invite well, you um, to recommend. I haven't really got to talk and tell my purse, but people Next person. are abused. They have told me I'm a... I'm I know, a, but I'm, I'm so not, sorry I'm that that happened to thing, you. I'm so sorry that, that happened to you I with Denver. Myself, I myself over again. The police I, department here. Ms. Starro, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm going to have to ask you to sit down. Join in. Okay. Ms. Starr, I'm so sorry that that happened to this, you. Because of the thin blue line will not work. These okay. Not thank you listen. for sharing your opinion. Um, we appreciate quickly, your opinion. Very quickly, I thank you, Ms. Starro, for your comments and your question. I, I, I do want to just two points. <laughs> Number one is um, that I, Denver does have an, an early intervention program for their police department that where they try to track numbers, and we can. 
I'm, I'm not debating with you how th about their conduct. I was just telling you that they they do have an early intervention program where they 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 do try to track the trends and identify individuals who who have who may be having problems and may be having issues. Um, you also raised a very good question or point in your comments that I wanted to highlight and, and actually ask Dr. McGee about, which is. Um, you expressed, and, and Dr. McGee, so this question's for you. you she expressed the, the idea or the notion that because um, police officers wear a badge and they carry mm -hmm. a gun, um, that your analogy that you know they're just like everyone else, I understand yeah. you're humanizing them and that's important. Um, but she said something that struck me that I'm, I'd love your opinion on, which mm -hmm. is that because of that, they should be held to a higher standard. And they absolutely are. They are. They absolutely are. Mm -hmm. And that's why we have all of the, um, we use all of the tools of technology. We, we actually um, use body-worn cameras. When I mentioned the, um, the downtown development district and some of the specialized units who didn't have body-worn cameras, we are actually, they're actually, everyone is wearing a body-worn camera. We have um, cameras in the vehicles, but it's not because of the cameras, it's because of their um, intentionality to do what's right. And you're absolutely right. Law enforcement officers are held to a higher standard, and I believe that our training and our um, intentionality around fairness and equity point to our efforts to police ourselves, to govern ourselves, and that if any officer violates they are, um, they are actually prosecuted to the highest extent of the law. And um, so yes, they are held to a higher standard, but my point in humanizing it is to say that, that it's important to realize that officers are human and they are trained to um, withstand the excessive, um, the excessive and negative complaints from others. They're, they're very well trained how to respond and not to respond when they're deliberately provoked. Mm -hmm. So that's, that is important. Actually, so thank you for asking. I appreciate that. We need more help. Thank you. Um, yes, ma'am. Thank you, Dr. McGee. My name is Larita. I am a student. I would like to thank you for taking this courageous opportunity to venture into humanizing police officers. They are held to an other standard, sometimes a higher standard, sometimes a lower standard. But um, helping them to humanize themselves is something that's very important because they have a job to do in policing the society and also learning to humanize the individuals that they are policing. Exactly. Um, what I was wondering, in your review of the situation, are you including the, the opinions of the family members of the police officers? Absolutely. Many times they are the, the um, victims of their crimes. Mm -hmm. And have you seen a reduction in home stress? So what we, again, we're early and anecdotal. And because remember, a lot of people don't want to disclose a lot of personal private things. Um, some of our uh, measures, for example, our new recruits, we host a family night where we invite the family members, parents, siblings, spouses, um, partners of the recruits to come in. We talk about their training. We explain how rigorous it's gonna be. 
We also explain about how as they transition from a civilian to a law enforcement officer, that the support of the family is needed. And also, we tell the families about the officer assistance program. We tell them that it's very stressful, and we let them know what resources are available for families, for counseling, um, um, especially in terms of trauma. Every time, unfortunately, when an officer is killed in the line of duty, immediately, um, we open up um, the doors for officers' assistance, but we also instantly have people who will come in and say, you know, my wife, my spouse, my child, um, especially hard on children of law enforcement officers, that children sometimes can't go to school and um, proudly say, my mom's a police officer, my dad's a police officer, because of some negative connotations, right? And so it's very important to speak to all of those family members and let them know what resources are available, because it does impact them. And it, it doesn't have to be an officer in New Orleans who's killed to have that domino effect of people coming in and wanting to reassess and think about their career and where they stand and how close am I to retirement. And um, because family members are impacted. So yes, we do um, reach out to the family members. Well, thank you for creating that space for them because it's also hard for them to come and just take a reflective look. So that's really awesome. Yes, thank you. I'm going to say that's the end because <laughs> the lights are getting to me. And again, um, I invite you to our website. I have the um, brochures to hand out, and I also have my cards. If anybody wants to email me, contact me. But again, we have an annual conference. I invite Denver Police Department to participate in the EPIC conference. Um, it'll be in June of 2020. And with that, we partner with Loyola University School of Law. And Thank you. it's hosted at the law school. Thank you very much, Dr. McGee. You're welcome. Um, we, we have just a, a, a few more minutes. And, and of course, part of these forums is, is, is really to simply hear from the public. So if there are any public comments um, that you want to make uh, or the questions that you have for the Citizen Oversight Board, um, please, you're, you're welcome to, to come to the mic. Hi. My name is Christy, and I'm a resident of the I, city I of Denver. Hi. Yes. Good to see you again. Good to see you guys. Um, I wanted to say thank you um, for Dr. McGee's service to our community, and thank you for your service to our community. I know um, your Fridays are important, and <laughs> spending them working to better our community, we appreciate your service. Um, our regular meetings are on oh. Fridays. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just have a comment for the committee. Um, this event is televised, and these pieces of paper that you handed out regarding the definition of the bills that we're talking about, those aren't shared on public TV. Um, so with that said, I just wanted to make the comment that our community holds you all in high esteem on your, in, as being a member of the Oversight Committee on your unbiased position, and I wanted to encourage you to um, explain the definitions of the bills being discussed in a way that's unbiased. So um, my personal belief tonight was, is that what was shared on public TV was presented by someone who could be obviously viewed as a biased position. So either to either have the other side of that view or to have it just simply defined and explained in greater detail 
by just de uh, defining the law as opposed to someone who is going to reiterate that law under a bias. Um, I wanted to say something else too. Um, as a member of the community, I believe that those who violate the law should be held accountable under the definition of the laws voted in by the people of their respected communities. And I ask you to think about the message you send in your recommendations from today's meeting. Have there been studies on how many reoffend while on a PR bond? I don't know if, is there anyone in this room who can answer that question? I would like to request as a citizen that that be something that be put under your consideration. Also, be it for trespassing, domestic violence, etc. I wonder about the victims of these type of low-level offenses. The rest of our society who obeys the law, knowing that there are consequences for breaking the law, what message does it send to them? What about the family who lost a loved one just a few blocks from here, just a few days ago, by a person who three months ago pleaded guilty to speeding at over 20 miles an hour, a low-level offense. How important is the message that we hold even these simple violations, the violations they make, we hold these people accountable for their actions, for not obeying the law? Um, in this case, um, as I just mentioned, what might be seen as a low-level misdemeanor, speeding, running a red light, ultimately costs someone their lives. So please think about how think about the penalties and how important it can be to uphold the law and the message that is sent from the penal process. Um, not only to the offender, the message the offender receives, and is the PR bond an effective way of sending a message? And are they reoffending while they're on this PR bond? Think about that, but also the confidence of our entire community who live in a safe, who want to live in a safe and law-abiding community. In my opinion, as a resident, as a mother, as a teacher, the price of this confidence is invaluable. So please think about, in your recommendations, both sides, and think about if it's possible to find a study of if the, what the reoffenses are while on a PR bond, and ultimately the messages that we send and our how effective are PR bonds and the, the message it sends to a victim when they've just had a crime committed against them and within a couple of days that person is released on a PR bond. So uh, that's what I ask and thank you again for your service. Thank you. Anyone else? Okay, well, I, I, I want to thank everyone for coming out. There are a lot of different places you could have been on a, a Thursday evening and the, towards the end of summer here in Denver. Um, we really appreciate your, um, your attention to, and your 
participation in the dialogue that we had here today or this evening uh, with regard to um, changes in the laws here in Colorado, as well as understanding what's happening in other locations across the country with regard to law enforcement and oversight of law enforcement. Um, with that, um, I would like to ask you to drive home safely or get home safely however you get home. And thank you again for your participation. Have a good night.